All right. We should say a prayer and get down to business here. Lord Jesus Christ, bless us in your word, your word which is the truth and which saves our souls. We pray this in your most holy name. Amen. Amen. All right. What are your questions? What's the picture? Oh, okay. This is great. So now, in chapter 2, in chapter 2, we get the story of Jesus calling Levi, okay? Which prompts me to give you this picture. Um, This is a very famous Caravaggio. Yeah, you've seen it before, probably. Oh, yeah? Okay. It's set, interestingly, it's set in a cathedral in a chapel alongside two other Caravaggios that are paintings of Matthew as well. So you've got the inspiration of Matthew, and then I think it's the martyrdom of Matthew beside it. But this is the call of Matthew. So now, we'll, get, we'll talk about the text, we'll, um, but let's just talk about the painting for right now. What do you see? Light. Light. I mean, this is characteristic of Car- the, the Caravaggio and the Caravaggio. Chiaroscuro, thank you. What does that mean specifically? Uh, it, means, it means like light and dark. The major contrast is light and dark. Major contrast is light. Dark. Perfect. It means this. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and which, I mean, I don't know if you have this experience too. It can make it really frustrating to look at, right? Because you want to be able to see everything, but you cannot. Um, so much of it is obscured. What else do you see? Yep. Is the same hand in the creation of Adam. Right. So now, okay, so you see that, so you, so you can tell, so first of all, let's make sure we know who Jesus is. You spot Jesus there on the right side with his hand extended. The light's coming in right over his head. So that's Jesus. And the light is incorrect. Yes. There's a, yep. Because if this were true to nature, it's a well, that's right. So you could have, so you you have the light coming in through what looks like a, it could be a window or maybe above the door, maybe. That's that that's that that big swath of light on the top, but then there's light on this side of Jesus's face. Maybe a lamp, right? Maybe an LED. I don't know something, right? Um, it might be just be Jesus. Although although I don't know because you'd expect if it was Jesus, he would be not. He would be. It would be coming from him. You wouldn't have it on Peter's back, say, if that is Peter, by the way. Maybe. I mean, he looks like Peter to me. I don't know. Could be. Yeah, right next to Jesus. Okay, now, but look at what Mary, Mary said. Look at Jesus' hand. Now, if you picture, I'm going to show you in just a second, but picture in your head Michelangelo's creation of Adam. Okay? Fresco on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Whose hand is that? Okay, so you look, you, okay, probably Michelangelo is the model, maybe, maybe. But, you, uh, so in the, in the creation of Adam, you have God on the right side, Adam on the left side. God is certainly making this gesture, but look at this. This is great. Whose hand is it? Look at the, you can, it's Adam's hand, right? God's gesture, but Adam's hand. Do you see that? Do you see Peter's hand? Yeah. No, I mean in here. Oh, I don't. I, uh, yeah, in there I see we see Peter's hand. It's a mimic sort of. Yeah, right. So Peter's doing somewhat what Jesus is doing. He's got a more forceful gesture than Jesus does. 
But so now, so you see here encapsulated, you see how this is, how this is God's gesture, but Jesus, but Adam's hand. You see in your painting how Jesus has Adam's hand. Same, same sort of posture. Because of course, Jesus is the new Adam, right? Um, and uh, th- this is where the contrast between light and dark. I mean, this is it's a convention, a, a, an artistic convention, but it's also theologically significant, right? So you've got called to mind immediately creation, which is um, characteristic of, Ma- of the book of Mark, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And then uh, the water, the spirit hovering over the water in the baptism. Creation is all over the place. And here Caravaggio shows us just what that means. It's not just a recreation, but it's a recreation by means of a new Adam, the God-man Jesus. Okay? What else do you see? Is this really the clothing of that? No, it is not. <laughs> anachronistic, anachronistic, which um, is, I mean, so it's not, it's not just like he was silly, didn't know. Although, interestingly, I mean, we were studying, we were looking at a Lucas Cronach painting. He's a Reformation-era painter. I was looking at it with the high schoolers. And um, in the painting he had, it was Adam and Eve. Maybe I showed it to you, even. Adam and Eve, and there's creatures in the garden around them. And one of the creatures is a lion. But the lion looks like a little puppy dog because Lucas Cronach didn't know what a lion looked like. His his closest reference was like a picture in a book that he had found somewhere. So, it was it's, it's so I mean that is a that is a a thing that they didn't he didn't know what a lion looked like, but this is clearly you know Baroque era clothing, right? Um, and what it does is it it's not again it's not accidental. It invites it invites you. So so imagine it was contemporary clothing, right? Um, blue jeans and sweatshirts and whatnot, um, you, would, it, you would feel like you were a part of the scene. Okay? I like the bare feet. Yes, but now, now who has bare feet here? Jesus and Peter. But not the, not the fellow sitting around the table, right? Yep. And, and in fact, Peter, you know, Peter looks like he's wearing much more appropriate garb. Peter does not have a hat on. That's his hair. I, now, but he is counting the money, right? Yes. So this is this is Levi, Matthew, the tax collector. So it's just tough to see. Tough to see. If you look up at the screen, you can get a sense of it a little bit more here. So oh, yeah. this is. I'm going to draw. I'm going to ruin the paint. This is bad. Here we go. Let's call this Matthew. No. This is Peter. Okay. One of the reasons why we why we suspect this is probably Matthew over here is because this bearded guy shows up in the other two paintings. Okay. Um, and he's also so you can imagine the scene. Jesus walks in and says, "Follow me." And Matthew says, "Who me?" <laughs> right. Me of all, so he's gesturing at himself. Who me? Although there is a there is a theory that appeared lately. I don't know in the last century that maybe this young man right here is Matthew, and this guy, other guy, is sitting there saying him, because this the young guy, of course, you know, looks like he's completely engrossed in counting the money. Um, but you'll notice this is the key, this is something I can point out to you. He, this is Matthew's arm right here. 
And he's got, his, he's got his hand in the money at the same time as well. Okay. Well, and the guy sitting next to Matthew, I assume, is supposed to be John, but he looks like he's 12. Yeah. 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 Now, why do, you, why do you assume it's supposed to be John? Because he is young. Because he's the youngest one in the picture. Oh, okay. But, but, but John wouldn't have been with Matthew when Matthew was collecting the taxes, right? So this is not a painting of the disciples. This is a painting of Matthew being called out of his, his tax booth. There's this, I mean, so Jesus goes along and finds Matthew engaged in his work. Although, I mean, work, you know, whether it's, so the reason why tax collect, why this is such a scandalous story is because he's not like the IRS, whom you despise, even though they do follow the law, Matthew uh, and tax collectors of that age were not, not great people, right? They, they strong-armed, and they took a cut for themselves. And they were even below shepherds on the rock. Yes. Yeah, I mean, despised, right? Yeah. Um, think Zacchaeus, right? Okay. Anything else you notice here? I like Peter's <clears throat> posture. Yeah. You can't see his face. Uh, he is looking toward Jesus and pointing towards Matthew, almost like, wait. Yeah, there's some ambiguity there, right? Yeah. That's a tax collector. Yeah, that guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember, do you remember we watched, when we were watching those Jesus films, there was one, I should have looked this up, there was one where um, Matthew, Peter, the, the famous reconciliation scene, Peter is going to leave Jesus, and then he shows up to the party anyways, and, and sort of sits down, and Jesus is hanging out with the sinners and the tax collectors, and do you remember that scene? Maybe I'm just dreaming it. Okay, never mind. Forget I said anything. I'll look, I'll look it up, and we'll, we'll, maybe we'll watch it another time. Yeah, I should have done that for this time. Um, okay. Now, one of the things, this, this, the call of Matthew appears in other Gospels, including Matthew. Um, this doesn't necessarily feel like the, um, the version we have in Mark. There's not as much haste, it seems like. I mean, Jesus is really sort of calm, just sort of going about meandering, right? Whereas in, in Mark, he's really sort of like, okay, we've got to get on to the next thing now, okay? Let's go. Like, like in fact, if you read it in Mark, let's see here. This is Mark chapter 2, verse 13, verse 14 as he passed by, so like he's walking along, as he passed by, he saw Levi and said, follow me. And so you get the sense that Jesus is walking by and he doesn't stop, follow me. And Levi comes along and follows him, right? Um, was he not sitting on the tree? Nope, that was, uh, that that was Zacchaeus. Oh, yep. So Levi is sitting, Matthew is sitting at his tax booth. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Let's, uh, let's back up a little bit. Um, before we get into Mark chapter 2 and chapter 3, we're going to try and cover this whole swath. 2, all of 2 through chapter 3, verse 6, maybe verse 12, okay? So, so hang on. Here we go. But first we have to make sure we know where we were. What have we, what have we seen so far in Mark chapter 1? Just give me highlights. Baptism. Okay. Baptism. Temptation. Temptation. Calling some disciples. Yep, calling some disciples. Miracles. Healing miracles. Okay. Preaching. 
and cleansing a leper. That's yeah, right. So, and, and you get that, the, the discipleship, you get especially as Jesus preaches in verse 14 and then calls the disciples, he's um, got this message that he wants people to hear, the gospel, and the disciples are the ones who hear it and then follow him, who do what he says. So we get preaching comes here or like after temptation, there we go, healing, um, man with an unclean spirit, Simon's mother-in-law, the leper. What characterizes the things that, the healing that Jesus has done so far? Should I, hey, should I turn the lights? Is it a little bit dimmer than it was? I wonder. There we go. Okay. All right. Is that good? There, there are those spots in the back too. Is there a switch? For, I don't know. Does that help you all at all? If you turn the spots on? Okay. Let's, let's go with it. Um. What, do you, what, are the, what are the characteristics of Jesus' healing so far? Okay, one by one, right? Be quiet, right? So individual. Now, have you wondered why he does that? Oh, just because he didn't want to be healed. Yeah. Well, he doesn't want to be known for a healer. Okay. That's a distraction, sort of. Um, There's something more important that that he's just not a miracle worker. Not just yeah, not just a miracle worker. So then, so then, why does he heal at all? Compassion, right? Yeah. Um, in fact, in fact, I'd say it's not to show his power. One of the things we'll discover is that. So imagine if Jesus was simply interested in establishing the fact that he is the Son of God. That would be the easiest thing for him to do, right? Um, This is not what he's after. Um, But notice along the way, let me find an example here. Um, So the end of chapter 1, verse 40. You all all have your Bibles open to Mark Mark chapter 1, verse 40. So he's got the leper. Verse 41, moved with pity. Moved with pity. He stretched out his hand and made him clean. Okay, so there's this this motion inside of him, this compassion that he cannot deny. It's part of his part of his nature. Um, and then this 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 is thematic. If you look at chapter two, verse five, especially this 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 language comes up. This language appears regularly when Jesus saw their faith. Right. So when he sees something. He cannot help but he cannot help but act. When he sees need, he cannot help but act. And then also, uh, he, 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 so it quickly it, it becomes this conflict because he sees need, and then he also perceives. So look, um, verse eight. Jesus immediately perceiving in his spirit that they were questioning among themselves. Right. So he sees need, and now he perceives them questioning about it, and he can't. He has to engage it. Right. He has to has to act. Um, which gives us a part of the turning point in chapter 2. What changes in chapter 2? So, Jesus is going along and he's come to preach, right? And the message, if you, if, you, if you go all the way back to what he says at the beginning in verse 14 and 15, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Okay, 
He's here to proclaim. This is, his, this is his chief object, to proclaim, saying, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. So what he wants is to tell you that everything you've been waiting for is now here, and your response to it should be to repent, turn around, go the other direction, right? Don't, no longer live as somebody who is not part of the kingdom of God. Turn around, repent, and believe. Um, now, what are they to believe? What's the object of, of that belief? Him. That's right. Yeah. Not, you know, so, and this is why healing actually serves his purposes. Um, because he's, for the people he heals, maybe not for everybody else, right? But for the people he heals, he gives them himself, right? They, can, they now believe in him. And it's on account of their faith often that he heals in the first place, right? Because they believed in him. So he's come, out, he, he's come out to preach. He doesn't want to be known yet, right? He, he doesn't permit the demons to speak. Why, did the, why, why the demons in particular? What do the demons say when they see Jesus? Yeah, you are the son of God, right? So they have, they're even more problematic than the people who might go around saying, here's a guy who can heal all your diseases because the demons are actually exposing everything. Here is the son of God. Here's the son of God. Um, and, and right away, we're going to find out why, that that's, why that's a problem for him. Um, he can't help but heal, and he's... And it seems, it's sort of like... So take a look at um, this last episode in Mark 1, verses 40 through 45, 44 especially. It's almost like he's going along, he sees need, he has to help, he helps, and then he's like, oh, shoot, <laughs> I helped somebody. I got I to gotta cover my tracks now, right? So this is how it goes. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand, verse 41, and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away and said, see that you say nothing to anyone. But go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what is commanded for a proof for them. As though it was just sort of a, your ordinary, run-of-the-mill cleansing, right? You know, may, maybe they're just interested in, you know, getting through the paperwork quickly, and they're not going to ask the questions, right? Um, but, he, but now, the problem, of course, is that this is the problem with the gospel, <laughs> is that it bubbles forth, right? They these people never listen to him. Um, that he went out and began to talk freely about it. It's like, it's like <laughs> you tell your kids to do something. You say, okay, you have one job. Go get your shoes on, right? Go put your shoes on. And then you come back later and there's nowhere near their shoes. No, no, th- uh, you're doing something else. What do you, put your shoes. I told you, one job. You have one job. Don't say anything about this. And he goes and he talks freely about it. Um, What's even worse is you tell your kids not to do it. Oh, the, oh yeah, exactly. That's right. I just said last night. Nathaniel, how many times did I tell you not to climb the wall? Two times, Dad. Okay, I told you two times, and you did it a third time. What are you, what are you doing? Ah. That's, you know, Bill Cosby, although I'm not supposed to, we're not supposed to refer to Bill Cosby anymore. But uh, he has the, had this great story. You know, he's always, parenthood is, is one of his things, and his kid is coming up to pick up the Coke that's sitting. He's sitting right there, and then there's a Coke on the table in front of him. The kid comes up and picks the Coke up, and Bill Cosby, put down, put it down, you know, and he puts it down, and then he comes back later, later and he picks it up again, and he's like, I told you not to drink it, and the, and the kid's, you know, repeats it back to him. Yeah, you told me not to drink it, and he's drinking the Coke while he you told me not to drink it. Anyway, this obviously strikes a nerve with me, the notion of, so, uh, 
<laughs> he goes out, talks freely about it, spreads the news. So now Jesus has this problem. He can no longer enter a town, right? And he can only, he, so he's out in the desolate places, not doing what he wants to be doing, right? He goes in the desolate places on his, on his own choice, you know, to pray and to talk with his father. But what he's here to do is to preach, to share the good news with the people. And people are coming to him from every quarter, okay? So now we have... Uh, we're in chapter 2, okay? We gotta just, we're going to just keep plowing ahead here. Listen to what happens in verses 1 through 12, okay? And tell me what's different, what's changed. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, maybe hoping that things had cooled down a little bit, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can first give sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know, and so now he's going to demonstrate, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Okay, so what's different now? What's different in this episode from previous the previous episodes? Confrontation. Confrontation, right? So we had healing before. What? Am I on the screen now? Okay. So we have we had before we had healing and avoiding confrontation, right? And now we have here it is, confrontation. Here we are. And number one, what's what's this confrontation about? What's the question they ask? His identity. Um okay, let, let's so why do they want what what How can we forgive sin? Yeah. Only God can forgive sin. Yeah. And this is I mean it is a ironic question for them to be asking, right? Who can? It's a question for which the answer is obvious. Who can forgive God, sins but God alone? No one. Ergo, right? This fellow must be God. Um, and Jesus, you know, demonstrating that the Son of Man has authority. That and he uses that language, Son of Man, which um, is probably a reference to Daniel. There's this scene in Daniel with the Ancient of Days and where um, the, the coming judgment on the world and, and this, this peculiar phrase, the Son of Man, shows up. And here's how it goes. Let's see. Um, I saw, this is Daniel 7, verse 13. So he's having these visions of the throne of God and the Ancient of Days on his seat and his clothing is white as snow and his hair is like pure wool and his throne was fiery flames and there streamed a, f- a stream of fire came forth and the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when he says, Son of Man, when Jesus says, Son of Man, he's not saying um, authority has been given to people like you and me, right? He's saying the authority has been given to the Son of Man, the one who, um, who the Ancient of Days, the, the Heavenly Father sitting on his throne, the one to whom that Father has given the authority, has given dominion. I am he, okay? Um, all right, so we have this confrontation, and the question is, how can he forgive sins? Okay, what else? Is there anything else that's different in this episode? God was glorified. That's right. I don't believe he was in prior. Right, right. So, so it, I mean, it appears that some people are, are starting to get this, right? And, and it's, it's as though, I mean, so Jesus has, has been going along healing, and we don't have it, we know he's preaching repentance and belief in the kingdom of God. We haven't heard him talk about the forgiveness of sins, and now it's sort of like he lays it out there, right? So this, this young man comes to him, or is brought to him, and Jesus looks at him and sees his need, and what does he need? To have his sins forgiven, right? This is, to, to have your sins forgiven is to hear the message of the gospel, to hear the gospel, to repent and believe. These things all go hand in hand, right? So when you hear your sins are forgiven, your faith responds by repenting and believing, right? These two things ha- go hand in hand. So here we have the gospel enacted, um, and, and Jesus is saying healing, being made well, being made to walk is secondary to that. Although he, the, although he asks this sort of rhetorical question, which is, which is easier? To say to a, a paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say to him, rise, take up your bed and walk, which one is easier? And why is that easier? That's right. Yeah. Can't see it. Yeah, it's easier to say. But if I say, rise, take up your bed and walk, and then nothing happens, um, I'm done, right? That's it. It's over. Yeah, Kathy. Well, in the previous chapter, he was actively avoiding confrontation. But this confrontation here, he initiated because they didn't say anything. That's right. They just read their hearts. That's right. If I was sitting. Suddenly, <laughs> Kathy, why are you thinking those things in your heart? <laughs> That's right. They apparently don't do that because they just yeah. harden their hearts even more. It's like, you know, if somebody like, expressed what I was thinking, I would think twice. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So, so, so it's like he, you know, he held off as long as he could, right? We're going to hold off this confrontation as long as he can because he's trying to, he's trying to preach. He's trying to preach. And he knows, I mean, it's inevitable the confrontation is inevitable um, because it's finally the confrontation that's going to kill him. But it's confrontation with a purpose. That's right. A loving purpose. Yeah. Yeah, he's not just egging them on. He's not just goading them. He, um... He's, I mean, and loving purpose, and he's also preaching at the same time. That's right. So it's often not... not um, it is... It, what he does serves the purpose of the serves the person with whom he's engaging. This is, this is true, right? But it, it, it regularly, in fact, all of the time, is also for the good of, maybe in a different way, everybody else. So this happens in Mark 8. I was, I was struck when Pastor Nelson was preaching on it just a couple weeks ago. Um, you know, so Mark 8, P- 
Peter, who, who, who do you say that the, who do you say that I am? Some say Elijah. Peter says, you are the Son of God. You are the Christ, the Son of God. And then Peter rebukes him when Jesus says, I'm going to die, right? This crucial episode in the story, right? And Jesus, this is how it goes. So Peter pulls, takes him aside. Pastor Nelson, you know, helpfully showed us what that looks like, right? Takes him and puts Jesus behind him, right? And now Jesus, who's behind him, this is what the text says. Seeing that the disciples were all around, says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, right? It's not like he's having this private conversation with Peter. But he, seeing all of the disciples watching this, um, says, I gotta, I'm gonna ha- I have to handle this a certain way, right? They have something to learn here, too. Um, and so, you know, although you might say to yourself, or you might, you might seem like the Pharisees are just, like, destined for hardness of heart, um, there are a lot of other people that he's serving also, right? A lot of other people uh, um, in, the, in the scene. Okay, let's move on. Verses 13 and following. Stick with me here. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw him, that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So now we have confrontation number two, right? Tell me about this confrontation. What's different from confrontation number one? He responded to their thoughts. Okay, that's right. So, Talking out loud. Right, so previously he heard them, um, he perceived, and now, but still, they're not talking to him yet, right? They're talking to his disciples, and he, hear, he heard it. Um, what's the question? What's their question? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Yeah, why eat with tax collectors and sinners? eating with the reference. That's right. Um, that's right. Yeah, so he's not just hanging out with them; he's eating with them. Um, ritual, ritual impurity, like ritually unclean now. So he can't go, he can't go to the temple and, and involve himself in the temple services any longer, uh, or until he's been until he's been purified. Um, and he's just and he's giving credibility to these the scum, right? Tax collectors and 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 you know sinners is not like this denotation for everybody. Like, oh, you know, we're all a bunch of sinners. No, it's, these are notorious sinners, right? Everybody knew that they were sinners. Um, and, go ahead, Faye. Yeah, no, go ahead. When Jesus sees them, he acknowledges that they're his friends. That's right. Yeah, yeah. He uh, has communion with them. Commun- he communes with them. Um, which is something that is, 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 is not just... At, an acquaintance, the establishment of an acquaintance, but it's an intimate relationship, right? Krista? Is it, is it uh, a little bit envy? Yeah, I think that that's probably fair, right? So along the way, you see that the, the pride of the, especially the leaders of the Jews in the fact that they are unique, that they've been called out. Um, 
and Jesus is now welcoming the people that they've excluded, right? The people that they've marginalized. Um, we'll get we'll get to some more of this in a moment. Hey, yeah, Carol. One other thing, in his response is <clears throat> not the way that many of us would respond. Right. He's not calling out <clears throat> the scribes for their question. He's answering it in a way that you hear and you can put yourself wherever you want. Yeah. It's like, I came, I mean, a physician, if you're, well, you don't need a doctor. Right. Doctors for the yeah. And said in a way that you can understand exactly what he's saying. Well, when I'm taking care of them, it's a, he's not saying, why aren't you here? That's right. He's not accusing. Not pointing the finger and saying, that's right. no, 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 no. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, 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 so this is a... This is a gospel proclamation, right? Here he's telling them, he's telling them what the kingdom looks like. It consists of sinners and not righteous. Um, and for, for anybody who's sort of self-reflective, you should, be, you, should, you should find yourself saying, oh, what a relief, I can stop pretending to be so righteous. Yeah. Kathy. Doesn't he sort of, it's like a progression of first it was just healing, healing people's sicknesses. Then he forgives someone and then heals them. And then in this situation, he's acknowledging that uh, disease is more than just, I mean, sin is a disease. Right, exactly. As a physician to be among those that need healing and and moving moving us away from the idea, well, it's just people who are at a fever. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> those sick people over there, for me, I'm well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, and, and and I mean, what that does is it gives you. So, so Jesus is not just um, somebody who is helpful. He's not just merely like. I mean, so it seems quaint to say he's not just a miracle worker, but it's not. It's not just that his compassion extends to physical ailments, right? But it it, it um, gets to the core, the root of the problem, Jan. The other thing that happens here that I never noticed before is that the scribes are circling around and going to the disciples and talking to them. Apparently, they want to try and get these disciples thinking that, well, Jesus is doing the wrong thing here. You shouldn't follow them. Right. But they're, they're doing this in a sneaky kind of way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and they and they are they're all along seeking to discredit Jesus. The, the the answer to the question why probably envy. The, the, we find out Jesus is saddened later at their. It, our text says hardness of heart, but it's more like their dullness of heart, their insens their insensitive hearts. And what what he finds to be problematic about them is that they. So we get this in the conflicts. We'll, we'll see them yet. If hopefully um, about the Sabbath, they. You know, the question is, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not, to, to give life or to let life fail? Um, and they don't know the answer to the question. Or, they, or to them, the question is easily answered by the law of the Sabbath. And Jesus is saddened by their insensitivity. The fact that they, don't, they neglect the weightier matters of the law, the, 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 the weightier matter of love. right? So they have set up this boundary... Um, which is which is you know rightfully God's law. He says, "Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy." They say, 
perfect. We can do that, okay? We can do that. But in saying that, they're also saying to themselves, if we do that, it means we can also, we don't have to worry about love your neighbor as yourself, right? We don't have to worry about it because we're keeping this law. We've got this one down. We've got it locked in. Um, I mean, and, and they sort of embrace the apparent dilemma, <laughs> the ethical dilemma, which, you know, what should I do on the Sabbath when somebody it needs something? Should I help them or not? Well, probably not because I don't want to break the law. Well, there is no ethical dilemma because what is the Sabbath for? It's for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus explains this later, right? Um, okay, we got to, let's, let's get there. Any other questions? Here it is. Uh, well, not quite yet. Verse 18. And John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Okay, so here we have another question. So, so see the progression. Um, he perceives what they're saying among themselves in number one. He hears them talking to his disciples about him in number two. And now in number three, they come to him and ask him about his disciples, right? Why don't your disciples fast? Is this the first place that he talks about being the bridegroom? Yeah, here in Mark it is. That's right. Yeah, and it's sort of incidental. Like he, maybe he's just using it as an image or maybe he is the, he is the bridegroom, right? Um, and what is his, what is his answer? How does he answer the question? Why don't they fast? I mean, we've got this, this, um, established tradition and law of fasts and feasts. Keep the fast, keep the fast. Why don't they fast? Why aren't they fasting right now? They don't need to. Yeah. Um, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Jesus is there with them. Um, the and whenever he's there, it's like, I mean you can't you you're always feasting when Jesus is with you, right? This is why I mean this is notably why we still fast now because Jesus has gone away, right? We're still in this provisional period. He came, there was this feast, and now he's gone away, and so our time is marked still by periods of fasting and feasting and fasting and feasting until one day we're with the bridegroom and there is no more fasting, right? Um, what about these, these sort of fable or uh, aphorisms that he gives them? How, does, how do they apply to the question of fasting? No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Okay, so... Well, the reason why they fast or whatever are commands and rules from Testament. Mm-hmm. Here is what was called the New Testament, the Covenant. Yeah. So this is new. Right. And it's a, you put old wine, old rules in, new rules in an old bag. 
thinking of the wine. Right. It's gotten from it. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So, so somehow, the, this intersection between the new and the old is incompatible. Somehow. Um, it's, not, it's not exactly clear in what way. He doesn't, he does, he's not saying out with the old altogether, right? Later in Mark, he says, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of a mouth that defiles a man. And Mark comments... Thereby, he did away with the laws about unclean food. Mark tells us that that's what Jesus is doing, right? So there's no longer this need for uh, setting apart the people of Israel by not eating certain kinds of animals and eating other kinds of animals um, because Jesus has come and made all things clean, okay? Um, here he's not, I mean, yeah, go ahead, Donna. Did you say that so he's the new one? Yeah, right yeah right so you need to, so you need to take stock you need to you need to step back and and, and one of the reasons I mean, this is it's a very human problem that they've sort of be, they've sort of become sedentary in their ways so um, they've heard God's law and they've been keeping his law religiously I mean the Pharisees the scribes and the Pharisees are religious people right pious and devout and um, at the same time they've sort of pulled you know on top of themselves all kinds of extra baggage that 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 taints and turns turns God's law into something ugly and not good right an old an old wineskin Barb why doesn't John's disciples follow Jesus they're not sure about Jesus yet he did, but even John, I mean, there's a strange episode later. John sends his disciples to Jesus. John's in prison, sends the disciples to Jesus, and they say, tell us, are you the one who's coming, or should we expect another? And Jesus says to him, says to them, look around and see the things I've been doing. The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. Um, the question answers itself, right? But it's interesting, for as certain as John is when he points and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that even he experiences some uncertainty. I mean, he's in prison and he's going to get beheaded, right? I mean, it, the, the reality of that temptation, um, I think we, we often undervalue it because we say, Look, he saw it. He baptized Jesus. The heavens were opened. You don't, have to, you don't ever have to wonder anymore. But then if what happens subsequently is Jesus is driven into the wilderness and you go to jail and, and Herod is going to kill you, um, you, you will doubt everything, right? Well, and then on, I'm thinking on top of it, if he has his disciples, you think as their leader, their instructor, their teacher would be as positive as you can be. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, other questions? Let's keep going just a little bit here. Let's keep going. We can do this. Verse, the last episode in, in Mark chapter 2. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain, and the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did 
when he was in need and was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Okay, so now we have a question about the Sabbath. And it's directed at him again about his disciples. So, no, so note, observe, they haven't, yet, they haven't yet come to him with an accusation about him yet, right? They're, they're trying all their angles. Why would they, why would they be so hesitant to come, at, come after him? They, they, right? <laughs> he, might, he might convince them. Um, Julie, did you send? Probably afraid. Yeah, right. They have these wonders. They probably have an inkling of probably this is real, but I'm Right. Right. Yeah, and if you, so if you're going to come at somebody, like if you're going to make a direct accusation to somebody, the only way that that's going to work out for you, I mean, unless you're like, unless you've got a, uh, a domineering personality and another person has a weak personality, the only way that's going to work is if you know the answers to the questions beforehand. Like if you know... If you've, got, if you've got the Trump card in your pocket, right? Um, that's now a funny phrase to say in this era of Trump. Um, if you, okay, if you know what they're going you know to, if you know that you've got them, that they've got, you've got them locked, you can't, come, you can't be uncertain, otherwise you're going you, you're gonna to lose your credibility, right? Um, and so they're sort, of, they're sort of feeling things out. That doesn't last for long, okay? You know this episode about David and the bread of... Uh, the bread of the um, the presentation bread in the yeah. temple. He's on the run from Saul, and they're hungry. He and his men are hungry, and he goes in. T- and, um, th- and then there's the the chief priest, and the the priest says, "No, you can't you can't eat this." And he says, "We're we're gonna we're starving." And the priest says, "Have you have you are all of your men pure? Have they been have they are they have they kept themselves clean?" David says, yes, we're, we're all clean. And he says, to help the priest out, to give him um, plausible deniability, right? He t- says to the priest, I've been sent by Saul. We're on a mission from the, for the king, right? Everybody knows who I am. I'm David. I'm a servant of the king. We're on a mission for the king. Look, we just need some bread, okay? And they, should, they would change out the bread every seven days. And so, you know, it wasn't, well, it's no big deal, right? So they eat the bread. Now, this story is interesting because, for one thing, you know, it shows you what the laws what the laws are for, right? And Jesus helps us to understand why there's law at all in the first place. It's to serve life. And if the law is failing, if, if it's being used in such a way that it's not serving life, then it's being misused. And this is precisely how the scribes and the Pharisees were using God's law. But the story is tragic because after David leaves, he, so he's there in the temple and there is a fellow, Doeg, the Edomite, who is, a servant of, who is another servant of Saul, sort of spying, spying things out. He happens to be there, and he hears the whole thing, right? And so after David is gone, Saul sends his men to, the, to, the, to Nob, where the priests are, and he slaughters all of the priests for helping David, Eight, something like 87 priests, um, which is, I mean, uh, it's tragic. It's eminently tragic, but it make, so you have to think about. So it's interesting to me to think about what exactly this means. So David might sort of feel really bad and responsible for that, right? So he put this. He put these priests in danger. 
because they helped him. Um, he doesn't feel bad about it. He says, you know what? I saw that coming. I knew that guy was, I knew that guy was there. It couldn't, be, it couldn't be helped. And the reason why he's, he doesn't feel bad is because he is confident. He's, he is confident that he is God's anointed, right? That God has, um, that, that the priests helping him was a godly thing to do. And also that it is, that the responsibility lies fully on Saul, right? Um, and that in a way, Saul carrying out this action, despite the tragic loss of life, um, Saul is just heaping judgment on himself. Saul is solidifying his, I mean, so he goes from persecuting, persecuting David, the Lord's anointed, uh, threatening his own son, and now, what an odd, ungodly man, you know, to slaughter the priests. Um, sometimes, sometimes in order for God's judgment to be carried out on the wicked, it involves them doing greater deeds of wickedness. Um, which is really hard for us to stomach. It's really hard for us to fathom. Um, but then, but we, there was the psalm that we read this morning in the chapel. It was the psalm that David prayed subsequent to the episode, Psalm 52. And he says, he talks about the fate of the wicked um, and that the righteous, which includes those, those faithful priests who were slaughtered, the righteous shall see and fear and laugh, laugh at this fellow who killed them, right? See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. So he thought that by destroying the priests, he was saving himself. He was he was securing himself. But in fact, it was his own destruction. And uh, what a pity that he did that. We're fine. I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God, right? What a wonderful thing to say. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. Um, anyway, that's a neither here nor there. Um, okay, so we've got the Sabbath, chapter one, chapter three, verses one through six. Do you have any questions before we get to this last little bit here? Okay. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Okay, so now they're ready to go, locked and loaded. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he says, so he's got the man here, and he says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. That's an obvious question to answer, right? Um, And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness, their dullness of heart. I mean, what kind just... Think about the state of your heart if you are unable to answer that question. Is it lawful to save life or to kill on the Sabbath? And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. So now they they have been silent. The Pharisees, his opponents, have been silent this whole time in this episode, except that they were ready to accuse him. He um, just absolutely obliterates their, their possibility for making a valid accusation, right? He's, if they accuse him, they are vile. If they're silent, um, they at least haven't admitted their vileness yet. But then, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Okay? And the irony here, again, I mean, this plays with the story of Saul. The irony, he asks them, is it lawful to save life or to kill? 
and they immediately go out and seek to kill, right? To destroy him. Their, ju- their judgment, they're heaping this judgment on themselves. Um, the inevitability of that is really hard for us. Just like it was hard for Peter, it's necessary that the Son of Man die and be raised from the dead, right? It's really hard for us. Um, the, so, so, I mean, this is why we cling to the whole story, right? Which, which gets us all the way to resurrection. If we didn't have a resurrection, um, this would be a desperate, a desperate story. Um, okay? The, the, last, the last verses I give you there, 7 through 12, um, they sort of put a bookend on what we've seen so far. So we again have, let me just read it to you. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. So he's had these confrontations. He's done his healing. He's now shifted. Um, he's, no, he's no longer in secret anymore. And they are uh, full-blown trying to kill him from this point on, at the beginning of chapter 3 already. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And this is all echoing, reflecting what happened Excuse me, in chapter 1. So he was healing many, healing many, and then... But prior to that, he casts out the demon who says, you are the son of God, right? So we've got this, this sort of mirror-imaged bookend um, to this series of healing episodes and then the, the, confrontation, um, the confrontation with his, with his enemies becomes inevitable. So that's where we are. Do you have any questions? Okay. Let's pray then. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, we'll pick up there next week. Yeah.